Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. As we've been going through this class, we've looked at a lot of what the Bible says, and recently contextualizing the kingdom within the Jewish and Roman world of the first century. In this lecture, I want to trace the kingdom belief throughout the history of Christianity, at least for the first few centuries. So so in this lecture, you'll find out who defended the kingdom belief in the first four centuries before it faded out of the mainstream and got replaced with going to heaven instead. In order to put you in contact with the primary sources, what I did in this lecture is different than others in the sense that I incorporated the students a lot in reading out a bunch of quotations so you can hear the unfiltered voices of these remarkable kingdom advocates throughout time. I think you'll really enjoy hearing these quotes from these early Christians and observing how they really did hold this belief throughout many years of the church. This is lecture 10 of the Kingdom of God class, originally taught at the Atlanta Bible College. To take this class for credit, please contact ABC so you can do the work necessary for a grade. Here now is Podcast 101, Historical Kingdom Advocates. Okay, so this is lecture number 10, Historical Kingdom Advocates, where we spend some time looking at the primary sources of ancient Christians who advocated for the kingdom, or maybe that's even too strong, ancient Christians who mention the kingdom and who wrote about it. So I have a number from the first century, and these are all outside the Bible. We've covered the Bible. We've gone through Genesis and Revelation. We've gone through Isaiah. We've gone through the other prophets. We've gone through the New Testament. We spent a good deal of time looking at how Jesus interprets the kingdom in his own ministry, but also as still a future reality as well. And Paul as well. We looked at Paul and James and so on. So now we are moving beyond the biblical testimony into early Christianity. And that's part of what this class is, is looking at the Bible and also history. So these names, if you haven't taken church history before, are going to sound strange to you, and that's okay. Every date I have on here is debatable, okay? <laughs> that's just the nature of it, and so are all the pronunciations. <laughs> But from the first century, we have the Didache, which is a, a document. It's not the name of anyone. If the Didache were a person and he were Italian, his name would be Didache. But that's just a bad pronunciation, in fact. Didache is how you say it. <laughs> and uh, we have Clement of Rome and Barnabas. So those three from the first century. From the second century, we have Ignatius, Polycarp, Hermas, whoever wrote Second Clement. Papias, Justin Martyr, and Irenaeus of Lyon. In the third century, we have Hippolytus, Commodion, Nepos, I love Nepos, and Victorinus, good name for a kid, <laughs> in my opinion. 
in the fourth century, I could only find Lactantius. I mean, maybe there are others in the fourth century, but early Christians just wrote so much that it's hard to get through it all. And it's hard to find quick ways to find things. It's not like the Bible where you can just do a little search or go to openbible.com or whatever and find verses related to a subject. These people wrote thousands and thousands of pages. But anyhow, this is what I've found so far as someone who's uh, studied church history a good deal, specifically on the question of who believed in the kingdom and who didn't believe in the kingdom and how do we lose this message? This is a huge message. How do we lose it? So what I want to do with you here and now is work through these various quotations, and you see I've highlighted the interesting bits of each. <laughs> so, sorry to have already taken that exciting part away from you. <laughs> you probably would like to go through and highlight as we go. But, um, and I think what we'll do is we'll just take turns reading these, and I have a, on some of them I have a couple of points to make. Yeah? I have a question. How did you pronounce that? Didike. Didike. Didike 8-2. What is, is the A2 like chapters and verses like yeah. in the Bible? Yeah. Sorry. Yep. The Didache, you know, and I can, I can talk quite a bit about each of these different things, but that would, I think, make this lecture too long, because uh, that's more of a church history thing. But the Didache is a short book. It's shorter than Romans, you know, to give you some sort of perspective on it. Definitely longer than First Peter, <laughs> you know, somewhere in there. It's got 16 short chapters in it. And nobody's sure really who wrote it. Uh, it's basically a church manual, how first century Christians sorted out how to do church. And it covers anything from communion to baptism to how to deal with people who claim to be apostles and are visiting, and how do you, fix, how do you spot a false apostle, and how do you spot a false prophet. And then it has, most of it is just basically the Sermon on the Mount. Like, this is how we live, which is what... The earliest Christians, that's, that's really all they really cared about, is how do we live as Christians in the crazy world, the Roman Empire that they lived in. And then once you get to the uh, third century, you really start getting theologians. But uh, I don't think those are theologians there because they, they believe in the kingdom. Typically, the theologians don't believe in the kingdom. <laughs> kind of a funny thing. All right, so Madison, could you read for us uh, the parts from the Didache here? Okay, to nor should you pray like the hypocrites. Instead, pray like this, just as the Lord commanded in his gospel. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All right, what is this a quote from? Yeah, it's from the Lord's Prayer. But it, it is the Didache mentioning the kingdom, so I you know, technically included it here. Uh, one of the things I look for in f scouring these ancient Christians is temporal eschatology instead of spatial eschatology. And so I have this nifty diagram that I think helps a little bit. The spatial way of thinking about it is like a three-layer cake with heaven on the top, earth in the middle, and hell on the bottom. And so if you're on earth and you die, you either float up to heaven or sink down to hell. That's what I call a spatial perspective, right? Because what matters is your location in space. If you're high enough up, you're in heaven. If you're low enough down, you're in hell. It's a very primitive, almost like medieval way of thinking about things. 
although it's very strong today still in Christianity, sadly. The ancient Jewish idea, though, that we see all throughout the Bible, is you have this age, and it's a temporal perspective. It's horizontal rather than vertical. On the left side, you have this age, and on the right side, you have the age to come. And of course, before this age, if we want to fill that in, we had, in the beginning, paradise, right? With Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, you have paradise, there's a fall, and that's what starts off this age. And we're in this age, somewhere in this age. Jesus dies on the cross in this age at some point. And then, when Jesus returns, that's Jesus returning, yay, that initiates the age to come. This is what I call a temporal perspective. This is a spatial perspective. So from a spatial eschatology, the question is, where am I located? From a temporal perspective, the question is, when am I located? Not where, but when. Am I living in Eden? Well, I think we're sure that's not the case. Am I living during the age to come? No because Jesus has not yet come back and there's still chaos as evidenced by last night's presidential debate. All right, what were we talking about? Oh, you were reading. Carry on. Didicate 9-4. Just as this broken bread was scattered upon the mountains and then was gathered together and became one, so may your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. For yours is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. All right, next one. Didicate 10, 5 through 6. Remember Thanks. your church, Lord to deliver it from all evil and to make it perfect in your love. And from the four winds, gather the church that has been sanctified into your kingdom, which you have prepared for it. For yours is the power and the glory forever. May grace come and may this world pass away. Hosanna to the God of David. Mm. If anyone is holy, let him come. If anyone is not, let him repent. Maranatha, amen. That's kind of cool, huh? This right here is part of a prayer. This is like a super early Christian prayer, both chapter 9 and chapter 10. Remember your church, O Lord. Remember your church, Lord, to deliver it, and so on. Gather the church that has been sanctified into your kingdom, which you have prepared for it. I mean, it's very biblical language. You can see that for the authors of the Didache, the kingdom is really the goal. And that's why they keep mentioning the kingdom here. Uh, go ahead, Madison. Didache 16, 6 through 8. And then there will appear the signs of truth. First the sign of an opening in heaven, then the sign of the sign of the trumpet, and third the resurrection of the dead. But not of all, rather as it has been said, the Lord will come and all his saints with him. Then the world will see the Lord coming upon the clouds of heaven. Right, and so this fits in with the Pauline view, the view of Paul, that we read in the Bible how there is a resurrection, First Thessalonians 4, there is a resurrection, we meet the Lord in the air, then we come, we come with him to the earth, right? We... We meet him and then come with him. That's the idea of the rapture. Have you heard that terminology before? Rapture. <laughs> so, um, anyhow, Clement of Rome. Josiah, could you read for us? Having therefore received their orders, being fully assured by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, and established in the word of God with full assurance of the Holy Ghost, they went forth proclaiming all right, so Clement of Rome is a very early Christian. He's writing around the year between 80 and 100. The traditional dating for Clement of Rome is the year 90. So he's writing possibly before even the New Testament is yet completed. 
And uh, he's not considered, uh, I don't think by any Christians today, of any sect that I know of, inspired scripture. But he is an early Christian who wrote this letter uh, from the Church of Rome to the church at Corinth. And here he's talking about the apostles. And he's like, oh, they went around proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand. That's something that the early Christians did. So that's the kingdom as gospel idea. Keep going, Josiah. First Clement 53. Yes. All the generations from Adam even unto this day have passed away. But those who, through the grace of God, have been perfect in love, now possesses a perfect a place among the godly, shall be made manifest at the revelation of the kingdom of Christ. All right, so all the generations, right, from Adam up until today, they are going to be made manifest at the revelation of the kingdom of Christ. So the language is not they're already enjoying their reward. The language is they're going to be made manifest. They're going to be revealed. They're going to see what they get out of everything at that revelation, that appearing of the kingdom of Christ. Once again, the kingdom is the focus. All right, Barnabas. Epistle of Barnabas, 1-7. For the Master has made known to us through the prophets things past and things present, and has given us a foretaste of things to come. Mm. That's just like what I said yesterday. Good old Barney. He's got it, right? Jesus is giving us a foretaste of things to come. All right, next one. Epistle of Barnabas 6.13. Again, I will show thee how, in respect to us, he has accomplished a second fashioning in these last days. The Lord says, Behold, I will make the last like the first. In reference to this, then the prophet proclaimed, Enter ye into the land flowing with milk and honey, and have dominion over it. That's pretty good, huh? So I had quoted that before, and I'll probably quote that again. Behold, I will make the first like the last, because that's the idea of the end being like the beginning. Um, but what does Barnabas believe that means? He thinks it means entering into a land flowing with milk and honey. I mean, that is the kingdom of God. That's the idea of living in a paradise, living in a restored world. And then he says, and have dominion over it. So not only is the world restored, but you also have the kingdom aspect of ruling and reigning. Um, Epistle of Barnabas, 11. <clears throat> because the righteous person not only lives in this world, but also looks forward to the holy age to come. Oh, there's that phrase. I love that phrase. Age to come. Mm -hmm. That's what we're looking forward to, the age to come. We're not looking forward to when we die. We're looking forward to when the age to come comes. Yeah. Is that the word aeonios? I bet, because he wrote in Greek. I could check on that, but then we would lose time. I would think it is. Uh, all right. One more. Um, Barnabas 15, 4-5. Observe, children, what he finished in six days means. It means this, that in 6,000 years, the Lord will bring everything to an end, for with him a day signifies a thousand years, and he rested on the seventh day. This means, when his son comes, he will destroy the time of the lawless one, and will judge the ungodly, and will change the sun, and the moon, and the stars, and then he will truly rest on the seventh day. So this is a, a theory of thinking about time, where he looks at all of history as a week of millennia. So each day is a thousand years, and so far as I can tell, Barnabas is the first Christian who does this. I never heard that before. Well, it, it'll come up over and over again, 
because like once once that idea starts just like floats out there then everyone's like oh yeah that makes a lot of sense yeah. it's not biblical right it's is barnabas yeah it's a thought <laughs> that's an interesting. it's an interesting thought yeah so um that's important to remember that he's the first one that looks at all of history as a week of millennia or thousands of years does he think that seventh day resting is now current time or that's just like another thousand years when his son comes that's when there will be the seventh day okay. the sabbath day the thousand-year millennium. All right, second century, Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp. Could you read those for us? Anna. Ignatius to the Ephesians 16.1. Not here, my brethren, those that corrupt families shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's an interesting phrase, huh? Inherit the kingdom of God. All right, good, Anna. Polycarp to the Philippians 5-2-3 In like manner should the deacons be blameless before the face of his righteousness, as being the servants of God and Christ, and not of men. They must not be slanderers, double-tongued, or lovers of money, but temperate in all things, compassionate, naked, industrious, walking according to the truth of the Lord, who was the servant of all. If we please him in this present world, we shall receive also the future world according as he has promised to us that he will rise us again from the dead, and that if we live worthily of him, we shall also reign together with him, provided only we believe. In a like manner, let the young men also be blameless in all things, being especially careful to preserve purity and keeping themselves in as with a bridle from every kind of evil. For it is well that they should be cut off from the lusts that are in the world, since every lust worketh against the spirit, and neither for any Haters, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind shall inherit the kingdom of God, nor those who do things inconsistent and unbecoming. Wherefore, it is needful to abstain from all these things, being subject to the presbyters and deacons, as unto God and Christ. The virgins also must walk in a blameless and pure conscience. All right, so Polycarp says that we are going to receive the future wor world, which includes raising us from the dead, if we live worthily of him, and we shall also reign together with him, provided only we believe. And then he quotes this bit from 1 Corinthians 6, 9, about all the people that won't inherit the kingdom of God. Again, his focus is not eschatology, it's not theology, it's explaining to the church at Philippi, a generation or two after Paul, explaining to them how to live. He's like, look, if we're going to be in the kingdom, this is how you live. Um, then we have Polycarp to the Philippians 11.2, For if a man cannot govern himself in such matters, how shall he enjoin them on others? If a man does not keep himself from covetousness, he shall be defiled by idolatry and shall be judged as one of the heathen. But... 
Who of us are ignorant of the judgment of the Lord? Do we not know that the saints shall judge the world, as Paul teaches? <laughs> it's like, come on, guys. Let's, let's get it right. <laughs> We're going to judge the world. Was Polycarp tortured? I'm trying to remember. Polycarp, uh, yeah. We have the martyrdom of Polycarp. Yeah, he's tortured a little bit, I guess. Wasn't he like... But he was, he was thrown into a fire, and, you know, there's a story that the fire, like, didn't kill him, and then they stabbed him with a sword. But, like, he still, he still was executed by the Roman government. That's clear. Sometimes those stories they tell about the martyrs, I, I don't know. <laughs> he was thrown into the fire, and then the fire didn't burn him, and then they stab him, and his, he bleeds so much that his blood puts out the fire. <laughs> Just like, come on. <laughs> Anyhow. It's <laughs> a lot of blood. Yeah, it could be, yeah, and it's it's just like I really don't have any way of telling the difference. Right. So I just yeah. don't. Take it with a grain yeah, of salt. take it with a grain of salt. I don't put my <laughs> eternal fate in his hands. <laughs> uh, then we have Hermes, who wrote in the early second century. The first half uh, is what people guesstimate on that. Hermes similitudes. Book 9, chapter 15, verses 2 through 3. He says, The first is faith, the second continence, the third power, the fourth patience, and the other. Others standing in the midst of these have the following names. Simplicity, innocence, purity, cheerfulness, truth, understanding, harmony, love. He who bears these names and that of the Son of God will be able to enter into the kingdom of God. There's that phraseology that my ear is attuned to. Is enter into the kingdom of God or... We saw that in the Bible quite a lot as well, I think like 14 times in the New Testament. And then he goes on to say, The servant of God who bears these names shall see indeed the kingdom of God, but shall not enter into it. Things he's talking about there is wickedness, anger, backbiting, these kinds of things like you're going to see the kingdom, but you're not going to be able to enter it. All right. And again, the point of what I'm doing here is not to endorse any one of these Christian authors as being like 100% right on their beliefs. My point is just like, hey, this guy believed in the kingdom, <laughs> okay? So then you have Hermes Similitudes 9, 20, verses 2 to 3, where he talks about, I'm just going to skip to the end there, such persons accordingly shall have difficulty in entering the kingdom of God. For as it is disagreeable to walk among thistles with naked feet, so also it is hard for such to enter the kingdom of God. And then we have whoever wrote Second Clement, which almost definitely was not the person who wrote First Clement. He just wanted the name attached. I think it was just like an accident of history that those two oh. documents ended up next to each other in the same place in Corinth. And consider, brethren, that the sojourning in the flesh in this world is but brief and transient, but the promise of Christ is that he will take us to heaven. No, that's not what it says. No. The promise of Christ, thank you. The promise of Christ is great and wonderful, even the rest of the kingdom to come and of life everlasting. Second Clement 9.6, let us therefore love one another that we may all attain to the kingdom of God. Second Clement 11.5-12, or actually verse 7 says, if therefore we shall do righteousness in the sight of God, we shall enter into his kingdom and shall receive the promises. Look, if we do righteousness, we will enter into his kingdom. And he talks about the day of the appearing of God. And then in the end of verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 5, 
it says, And the male and the female, neither male nor female, this meaneth that a brother seeing a sister should think nothing about her as of a female, nor she think anything about him as of a male. If you do these things, saith he, the kingdom of my father shall come. I'm not really sure what he's <laughs> basically he's saying is like, hey guys, if we just stop getting married and we just look at each other platonically rather than romantically, then the kingdom will come. Look, obviously that's his own thing. But my point is he thinks the kingdom's yet to come and it's what he's definitely looking forward to. Is it, he means like spiritual brothers and sisters. Right. Right. Yeah. Actually we're gonna look at that a little later. The influence of asceticism on early Christianity and how that affects their belief about the kingdom. Note the corporate mindset of the afterlife in these sections here, right? We, 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 not I, 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 we, we, we. Rather than individuals flitting up each with their individual instantaneous judgment, there's a group of people that all at once inherit the kingdom or all at once don't inherit the kingdom. <laughs> And so then the last one from Clement is 2 Clement 17, 4 and 5, which says, For the Lord said, I come to gather together all the nations, tribes, and tongues. This he speaketh of the day of his appearing, when he shall come and redeem us, each one according to his works. And the unbelievers shall see his glory and strength. They shall think it strange when they see the sovereignty of the world in Jesus, saying, Woe unto us! Thou wast he, and we did not know, and did not believe, and we did not obey the presbyters when they declared unto us concerning our salvation. I love that. When they see the sovereignty of the world in Jesus. <laughs> it's like the Son of Man from Daniel 7, 13 and 14, where it says, All the sovereignty and the dominion and the glory will, of all the peoples, the languages, and the nations will go to the Son of Man, and he will rule forever, and his kingdom will not be destroyed, and all that. All right, Rebecca, read to us a little bit from Brother Papias. I should say just a couple of things. The reason why a lot of this is Old English is because uh, a lot of times only the copyrighted ones or the uncopyrighted ones are the older English. And one of the unique issues with Papias is that his books don't survive. So the only way we get at Papias is by quoting somebody else that quoted Papias. All right, so that's kind of unfortunate but we can do it, all right? And now this quote comes from Irenaeus, and uh, Irenaeus is writing only 50 years after Papias. Uh, so you have Irenaeus over here, and Papias is just a little before him. So Papias is about 130, Irenaeus is about 180. And so that, that's a good range. You know, sometimes you have a document from several hundred years later, and that's all we have, quoting it. Uh, so 50 years, historically speaking, is just like, the blink of an eye. Papias wrote, okay, cited in Arrhenius against heresies. Mm -hmm. five, Book 5, chapter 33, verses 3 to 4. Okay. Or I guess it would be paragraphs 3 to 4. It's more than a verse here. Just as the elders who saw John the disciple of the Lord recalled having heard from him how the Lord used to teach about those times and say, the days will come when vines will grow, each having 10,000 shoots, and on each shoot 10,000 branches, and on each branch 10,000 twigs, and on each twig 10,000 clusters, and each cluster 10,000 grapes, and each grape when crushed will yield 25 measures of wine. Nice. And when one of the saints... <laughs> one grape. <laughs> when one of the saints takes hold of a cluster, another cluster will cry out, I'm better, take me, bless the Lord through me. 
Similarly, a grain of wheat will produce 10,000 heads, and every head will have 10,000 grains, and every grain 10 pounds of fine flour, white and clean. Mm. And the other fruits, seeds, and grass will produce in similar proportions, and all the animals feeding on these fruits produced by the soil will in turn become peaceful and harmonious toward one another and fully subject to mankind, humankind. All right, let's pause there. <laughs> what a vision, huh? Yeah. Now, there are two ways to take this. One is to say Papias is very crude and very naive. Another way is to say he's speaking metaphorically of, and what is, what, what is, what is he communicating? It's going to be so good you don't that, understand. Yeah, abundance, right? And look, it's really not that different than what we saw with the plowman overtaking the reaper in Amos. I don't think the plowman is really going to overtake the reaper and like be like, excuse me, I need to plant now because, or I need to plow this now because we have to plant and you're, I know you're not done. Who would ever do that? Nobody. If you're still reaping, you don't, you don't start plowing. But the point is, <laughs> the point is you see a vision of abundance. I mean, does Papias think grape clusters are actually going to start speaking? No. Just like in the Old Testament, you read like the trees clapping their hands, right? It's a metaphor for rejoicing. So, but the, the point is clear. Incredible agricultural abundance and peace with animals. Right? That's, that's pretty clear as well. All right, keep going. And these things are borne witness to in writings by Papias, the hero of John, and a companion of Polycarp in his fourth book. For there were five books compiled by him. And he says in addition, now these are credible to believers. And he says that, when the traitor Judas did not give credit to them and put the question, that how then can things about to bring forth so abundantly be, brought by, be wrought by the Lord? The Lord declared, They who shall come to these times shall see. When prophesying of these times, therefore, Isaiah, Isaiah says, The wolf also shall feed with the lamb, and the leopard shall take his rest with the kid, calf also, and the bull and the lion shall eat together, and a little boy shall lead them. The ox and the bear shall feed together, and their young ones will, shall agree together. And the lion shall eat straw as well as the ox. And the infant boy shall thrust his hand into the ass's den, into the nest, nest also of the adder's brood. And they shall do no harm, nor have power to hurt anything in my holy mountain. This is Papias saying, this is something Jesus said, just to be clear, about the 10,000 clusters of grapes and all this kind of thing. And that when Jesus said it, Judas said, now how is this going to happen? Come on. And then Jesus quoted Isaiah, saying, well, look, it says in Isaiah, the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and all this other stuff. Whether any of this actually happened or not, I have no idea. But Papias believed in the kingdom. <laughs> that's, that's my point there. And then we have um, another little snippet. This is one of the most important things I ever found in all of my scouring of church history on the kingdom subject. And that's from Jerome wrote this book. Jerome is way later. He's fifth century. He writes a book called The Lives of Illustrious Men. And he writes the, yeah, he translates the Vulgate. Um, there's a lot to say about Jerome. He's very influential. But in, in this interesting book, Lives of Illustrious Men, he goes through all the different Christians that came before him that are of note. And he writes a little bio for each one. And this is the complete bio he writes about Papias. Uh, Rebecca, could you read that? Yes. Jerome's Lives of Illustrious Men, chapter 18. Yeah. Papias, the pupil of John, bishop of Hierapolis in Asia, 
wrote only five volumes, which he entitled Exposition of the Words of Our Lord, in which, when he had asserted in his preface that he did not follow various opinions, but had the apostles for authority, he is said to have published A Second Coming of Our Lord, or Millennium. Arrhenius and Apollinaris and others who say that after the resurrection the Lord will reign in the flesh with the saints follow him. Tertullian, also in his work on the hope of the faithful, Victorinus of Peta and Lactantius follow this view. It's so valuable because Jerome, who hated the kingdom, as we'll come to see, uh, gives us all the people who believed in the kingdom before him. <laughs> uh, I mean, not all of them, but a number of them. So it's like, hey, you just gave me a list of all the people to look at to find more kingdom quotes. Thanks, Jerome. And so he mentions Irenaeus. So basically what Jerome is saying is like, Papias wrote this book. It was really influential. And in this book, he talks about how the Lord will reign, after the resurrection, the Lord will reign in the flesh with the saints. That's another way to say the kingdom, right? And that all these other people agree with him, including Irenaeus, Apollinaris, Tertullian, Victorinus, and Lactantius. All people that are now on the board, except for T T Tertullian. I think he was wrong about Tertullian. Yeah. When I started looking into Tertullian, what I came to see was that he did believe in a millennium, but then he believed that we would all go to heaven at the end of it. So I don't classify Tertullian as a true kingdom believer. Justin Martyr, Madison, can you read for us? Justin Martyr, this is, uh, this is one of the most important ones to discover what other Christians believed, right? So you have the kingdom Christians, but then you have two other categories. So Justin Martyr talks about three categories. See if you can spot all three. Dialogue with Trifo 80. And Trifo to this replied, I remark to you, sir, that you are very anxious to be safe in all respects since you cling to the scriptures. But tell me, do you really admit that this place, Jerusalem, shall be rebuilt? And do you expect your people to be gathered together and made joyful with Christ and the patriarchs and the prophets, both the men of our nation and other proselytes who joined them before your Christ came? Or have you given way and admitted this in order to have the appearance of worsting us in the controversies? Then I answered, I am not so miserable a fellow Trifo as to say one thing and think another. I admitted to you formerly that I and many others are of this opinion and believe that such will take place. All right, what was the question he asked? Do you really believe that Jerusalem will be rebuilt? Right. Now, just to give a little background, there was a great war that ended around the year 135 called the Bar Kokhba Revolution in which Jerusalem itself, not just the temple, but the whole city was destroyed by the Romans. It was destroyed and rebuilt as a Roman city called Aelia Capitolina, and they built a temple to Jupiter on the old site of the Jewish temple. All right, so they're, they're literally, at the time of this conversation, there literally is no Jerusalem anymore. It's either in ruins or it's been rebuilt as a Roman city. Trifo is a Zionist, right? Trifo is a Jew. Um, he, like many Jews of his age, reads the Old Testament, what we, what we call the Old Testament. And as a result, he believes that there is this kingdom that's going to come. And part of that kingdom, according to Isaiah 60, is restoration and rebuilding of Jerusalem. And so Trifo's question to Justin is, hey, do you, guys, do you guys believe in the restoration of Jerusalem? Is that part of your belief as Christians? Or do you just like pick what parts of the Bible you like? And you know, it's, not, it's not really a friendly conversation. It's a bit of a hostile conversation. What year was the Barcoffer Revolution? 132 to 135. And the dating of this 
book, and this is like a full paperback book, the Dialogue of Trifo, or Dialogue with Trifo, is uh, around the year 155 to 165, somewhere in that range. So it's about 20, 30 years after the city had been destroyed by the Roman legions. And so his question is simple, like, hey, do you Christians believe in the restoration of Jerusalem? And Justin says, yeah, we believe that. You can start with I and many others. I and many others are of this opinion and believe that such will take place, as you assuredly are aware. But, on the other hand, I signify to you that many who belong to the pure and pious faith and are true Christians think otherwise. Moreover, I pointed out to you that some who are called Christians but are godless and pious heretics teach doctrines that are in every way blasphemous, atheistical, and foolish. But that you may know that I do not say this before you alone. I shall draw up a statement, as far as I can, of all the arguments which have passed between us, in which I shall record myself as admitting the very same things which I admit to you. For I chose to follow not men or men's doctrines, but God and the doctrines delivered by him. For if you have fallen in with some who are called Christians, but do not admit this truth, and venture to blaspheme the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, who say there is no resurrection of the dead, and that their souls, when they die, are taken to heaven, do not imagine that they are Christians, even as one, if he could rightly consider it, would not admit that the Sadducees or similar sects of Maristae, Galileans, Hellenists, Pharisees, Baptists, are Jews. Do not hear me impatiently when I tell you what I think, but are only called Jews and children of Abraham, worshiping God with the lips, as God himself declared, but the heart was far from him. But I and others who are right-minded Christians on all points are assured that there will be a resurrection of the dead, and a thousand years in Jerusalem, which will then be built, adorned and enlarged, as the prophets Ezekiel and Isaiah and others declare. All right, so for Justin, we have three groups. I should emphasize this. It's not just that he thinks Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. It's that he thinks... Uh, the question is, do you think it's going to be rebuilt and do you expect your people to be gathered there and made joyful with Christ and the patriarchs and the prophets, both of our nation and proselytes who joined them before your Christ came? So it's talking about not just rebuilding a city, but like the kingdom of God when that city is rebuilt and the prophets are there and Christ is there. And so Justin says that there are those like him who believe in the kingdom and in particular the restoration of Jerusalem. And then there's another, and he, he calls this group, which he's in, he calls them right-minded Christians on all points. <laughs> you, always, you always want your own group to be the best, right? <laughs> or else you would join a different group, I suppose. Uh, group number two is those who don't believe in the restoration of Jerusalem. No restoration of Jerusalem. It's not clear what they would believe instead. But they do believe in the resurrection of the body, and they certainly don't believe in going to heaven when they die. All right, that's another group of Christians. And he says about them that they belong to the pure and pious faith and are true Christians. They're not right about everything, but they're still good people. <laughs> and he, he considers them genuine Christians. And then those who have the belief in no resurrection, but that their souls, he specifically says, souls go to heaven. These people he calls godless, impious heretics. So there are three groups. There are the, the kingdom Christians. Then there are 
people who believe in resurrection, but maybe they don't believe in the Jerusalem part of the kingdom. It's not really clear what they believe, but it doesn't seem like they're in heaven. Or maybe they're in heaven with a body. I don't know what, what, what their category is. Uh, and then the last category is people that actually think they're going to heaven when they die, and he just unloads on them. <laughs> like, it's, it, it gets, that's where it gets ugly in his book. <laughs> uh, so for him, resurrection is the uh, litmus test of genuine Christianity. Then we get to Irenaeus of Lyon who wrote between 175 and 185, and he is the strongest kingdom advocate I've ever found in ancient Christian writings. He goes on and on and on. I had to cut it off. Like I gave you over, over two pages of Irenaeus, and that's me cutting it off. Like uh, at the very end of the quotation here, I say, this continues until chapter 36. Like I only went to chapter 33. <laughs> It just keeps going, right? And uh, it's so it's so cool. Um, he writes against, and this is against heresy. Against heresies is a really long book, by the way, and it has all these different, you know, like it's it's a book, but then it has books in it. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but like sections in it, they're called books. And this is from book five, which is the last of the of the overall. I guess you would call it a tome. <laughs> Uh, so book 5, chapter 31, verse 1, he says, Since again, some who are reckoned among the Orthodox go beyond the prearranged plan for the exaltation of the just and are ignorant of the methods by which they are disciplined beforehand for incorruption, they thus entertain heretical opinions for the heretics, despising the handiwork of God and not admitting the salvation of the flesh, while they also treat the promise of God contemptuously and pass beyond God altogether in their sentiments, they form a firm that immediately upon their death they shall pass above the heavens and the demiurge and go to the mother or to the father whom they have feigned. So this is, uh, again, it's a book called Against Heresies. He's listing out all the different Christians who have heretical beliefs. You have to be a Christian to be a heretic. If you aren't a Christian, and you believe other things, you're just a heathen, or you're an unbeliever, or a pagan, right? So if you're claiming to be a Christian, and you're claiming to believe something that's wrong, then you're qualified as a heretic. So what is he saying here? He's saying that some of our beloved Christians are following these heretical opinions because they're falling for these wackos that despise God's handiwork. What's God's handiwork? Salvation of the flesh. Creation, Right? Including the flesh, but including the world that he made, right? That's his handiwork. That's what he made. And what do they think instead? Well, they think that immediately upon their death, they're going to pass above the heavens and go to the demiurge. Demiurge is a word for craftsman. It's the artificer, the one who actually made the universe. Let's look at uh, 32.1. Uh, whose turn is it? Josiah, could you read for that, us for that? And as much, therefore, as the opinions of certain orthodox persons are derived from heretical discourses, they are both ignorant of God's dispositions, dispensations, dispensations, and the mystery of the resurrection of the just, and of the earthly kingdom, which is the commencement of incorruption, by means of which kingdom those who shall be worthy are accustomed gradually uh, to partake in the, of the divine nature, and it is necessary to tell them, respecting those things, that if that it behoves the righteous first to receive the promise of the inheritance which God promised to the fathers, and to reign in it, 
when they rise again to behold God in in this creation which is renovated, that the judgment should take place afterwards. For it is just that in that very creation, for it is just that in that very creation in which they toiled or were afflicted, reproved in every way by suffering, they should receive the reward of their suffering. That in the creation in which they were slain because of their love for love to God, and that they should be revived again, and that in the creation in which they endured servitude, and that they should reign. For God is rich in all things, and all things are His. It is fitting, therefore, that the creation itself, being restored to this primeval condition, should without restraint be under the dominion of the righteous. I mean, there, there it is, right? I mean, it's plain as day. Keep going there. And the apostles has made this plain in the epistle of the Romans. When they thus, when he thus speaks, for the expectation of creation, waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature has been subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason to him who hath subjected the same in hope. Since the creature itself shall be also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. So the only reason, according to him, at the top, once again, inasmuch, therefore, as the opinions of certain orthodox persons are derived from heretical discourses, they are both ignorant of God's dispensations and of the mystery of the resurrection of the just and of the earthly kingdom, which is the commencement of incorruption by means, and he goes on. So what he believes is that the Christians who don't believe in the kingdom, that's because they are listening to the heretics. And his book is primarily directed against what's called the Gnostics, and other evil groups that have influenced them. So, Justin will, will grant this second category here of people who don't really believe in the kingdom, but they do believe in the resurrection of the dead. He'll say, look, these people are still good people. But if you don't believe in the resurrection, you're a rotten scoundrel. Irenaeus is like, all right, look, either you believe in the kingdom, or you're way off base and you're listening to the rotten scoundrels, and that's the only reason why you don't believe in the kingdom. So Irenaeus is actually stronger than Justin is. I mean, he doesn't use as much like name-calling, but uh, he, he has a stronger view of the importance of the kingdom, which is why he goes on and on and on about it. Look at chapter 32, verse 2. Thus then, the promise of God, which he gave to Abraham, remains steadfast. Hmm. There's the Abrahamic covenant, wouldn't you say? For thus he said, Lift up thine eyes and look from this place where now thou art toward the north and south and east and west. For all the earth which thou seest, I will give to thee and to thy seed even forever. And again he says, Arise and go through the length and breadth of the land, since I will give it unto thee. And yet he did not receive an inheritance in it, did he? Abraham did not receive the land. Not even a footstep but was always a stranger and a pilgrim therein. And upon the death of Sarah, his wife, when the Hittites were willing to bestow upon him a place where he might bury her, he declined it as a gift, but bought the burying place, giving for it 400 talents of silver from Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite. Uh, thus did he await patiently the promise of God and was unwilling to appear to receive from men what God had promised to him. That's a beautiful way of thinking about that. It doesn't quite say that in the Bible. But that makes perfect sense so to me. He's saying like Abraham didn't didn't take that as a gift because he's like God promised me this anyway. Gonna- yeah, you're not going to give it to me. God's going to give it to me. Yeah, it's quite, kind of like what he did with the um, the spoils from Melchizedek from that battle. 
or not from Melchizedek, from Sodom and Gomorrah, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, like he won this battle. So to the victor go the spoils and he won't take any of it. He gives it all back to the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's like, look, I'm going to take 10% of this and give it to Melchizedek as a uh, tithe. And then whatever my people recovered or needed, you know, just like break even basically, they can have. But I don't want anyone saying, you, you made me rich. God is my sufficiency. So I can see why he would go this way with this one too. And he said again to him as follows, I will give this land to thy seed from the river of Egypt unto the great river Euphrates. If then, this is the key point for Irenaeus about Abraham. If then God promised him the inheritance of the land, yet he did not receive it during all the time of his sojourn there, it must be that together with his seed, that is those who fear God and believe in him, he shall receive it at the resurrection of the just. That's Abrahamic reasoning. <laughs> right? There are these promises God made to Abraham. Abraham did not receive the promise. That's Hebrews. Therefore, God is going to give him that promise. And then we look down a little further. It says, Now God made promise of the earth to Abraham and his seed, yet neither Abraham nor his seed, that is those who are justified by faith, do now receive any inheritance in it, but they shall receive it at the resurrection of the just. Said so the same thing again, right? For God is true and faithful, and on this account, he said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I love just like throwing in Matthew 5, 5 there. Brilliant. Irenaeus is the one who talks about God's promise to Abraham to inherit the land. And then he goes on, we have a lot more about resurrection and inheriting the land in chapters 33 and uh, following, but uh, we're not going to read it. It's uh, there for you if you would like to read it. In the third, so that's, we just got to the second century. <laughs> I have a lot for the second century, as you can see. Now in the third century, this is Hippolytus who lived in the third century. He was actually born in the second century. And this is on Genesis, fragment three, from what's left of his writings. And Hippolytus says, The word of God here is the promise anew of the blessing and hope of a kingdom to come, in which the saints shall reign with Christ and keep the true Sabbath. Which is probably a reference to Hebrews, where it's like there's a Sabbath yet remaining of rest. Like the general idea of rest, not necessarily Saturday. Then Hippolytus says in his work on Daniel 2.4, he says, For the first appearance of our Lord in the flesh took place in Bethlehem under Augustus in the year 5500. So this is somebody doing chronology. And he suffered in the 33rd year, and 6,000 years must needs be accomplished in order that the Sabbath may come, the rest, the holy day, on which God rested from all his works. For the Sabbath is a type and emblem of the future kingdom of the saints when they shall reign with Christ when he comes from heaven, as John says in the Apocalypse. For a day with the Lord is as a thousand years. Well, actually, John doesn't say that, but uh, that's a separate issue. That's Peter. Regardless of if you agree with his interpretation or not, Hippolytus, who is actually a very significant person in the third century, believes in the kingdom. That's pretty clear. So he's saying in 500 years, Jesus is coming back? Yeah, uh, he got that one wrong. That's pretty clear. That 500 years has come and gone. <laughs> Commodian, who flourished around the year 250 
in the instructions of Commodianus 44 says, from heaven will descend the city in the first resurrection. This is what we may tell of such a celestial fabric. We shall arise again to him who have been devoted to him, and they shall be incorruptible, even already living without death. And neither will there be any grief nor any groaning in that city. They shall come also who overcame cruel martyrdom under Antichrist, and they themselves live for the whole time and receive blessings because they have suffered evil things, and they themselves marrying beget for a thousand years. That's interesting, huh? So the martyrs get to have children during the millennium, <laughs> according to Commodian. There are prepared all the revenues of the earth because the earth renewed without end pours forth abundantly. Therein are no rains, no cold comes into the golden camp, no sieges as now, nor rapines, nor does the sit that city crave the light of a lamp. It shines from its founder. Uh, and then it goes on to talk about it a little bit more. But the idea is clear. The location, according to Commodian, of the final reward is planet Earth. You know, because he starts by saying the city will descend from heaven. And then we have Nepos. Nepos lives in Egypt, and we actually know very little about him. In fact, we have none of his writings that survive. Zero. However, his enemies talked about him. And so we know about him from his enemies. And so he flourished around the year 255. And this is from Eusebius, who is writing you know, about a century later or so. He says in Ecclesiastical History 7.24.1, besides all these, the two books on the promises, that's the books that a bishop named Dionysius wrote called On the Promises, were prepared by him. The hymn there is Dionysius. The occasion of these, why did Dionysius write these books, was Nepos, a bishop in Egypt, who taught that the promises to the holy men in divine scripture should be understood in a more Jewish manner, and that there would be a certain millennium of bodily luxury upon these, this earth. Now, I'm sure Nepos wouldn't say it in that way. I believe in a millennium of bodily luxury. No, he's probably just said resurrection, abundance, eating and drinking and enjoying God's creation. But since they bring forward a certain work of Nepos, on which they rely confidently, as if it proved beyond dispute that there will be a reign of Christ upon the earth, I confess that in many other respects, I approve and love Nepos for his faith, yada, 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 and he holds him in reverence, but he's still going to write a book to disprove everything he says. <laughs> and then the part at the end there. But on the contrary, uh, Nepos's book, leads them to hope for small and mortal things in the kingdom of God, yes, that phrase, and for things such as exist now. So obviously this is a polemic, this is a criticism by an enemy of this man, but in criticizing him, he tells us what the man believed, and Nepos very firmly believed in the kingdom of God, in the reign of Christ upon the earth, and so on. Victorinus, who wrote somewhere between 270 and 310, a book called On the Creation of the World, he says, wherefore to those seven days the Lord attributed to each a thousand years. There's that day, year, day millennium theory again. For thus went the warning, in thine eyes, O Lord, a thousand years are as one day. It's in the Psalms, it's in Peter. Where at, therefore, in the eyes of the Lord, each thousand of years is ordained, for I find that the Lord's eyes are seven. 
okay? Wherefore, as I have narrated, that true Sabbath will be in the seventh millenary of the years when Christ with his elect shall reign. So that's Victorinus writing about that millennial reign. All right, now we move to the fourth century, and I just have a little bit there. Talon, can you uh, read for us? Lactantius. Divine Institutes 4.12. For then do the Jews both confess and expect the Christ of God, who rejected him on his account because he was born of man. For since it is so arranged by God that the same Christ should twice come to the earth, once to announce the, to the nations the one God, then again to reign. Why do they who do, did not believe in his first advent believe in the second? Lastly, on account of the goodness and... Hold on. I, I should have highlighted that, right? The first time is to announce... What does he say? Um, the God. one God? I love that. You got to love that, right? Yeah. So Jesus came the first time to announce the one God, and then again to reign. That's pretty good. That's like the whole gospel message. Well, maybe not the whole gospel message, but that's, that's uh, definitely worth highlighting there, right? All right, keep going there, Talon. <clears throat> Lastly, on account of the goodness and faithfulness which he displayed towards God on earth, there was given to him a kingdom and glory and dominion, and all people, tribes, and languages shall serve him, and his dominion is everlasting, and that which shall never pass away, and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. And this is understood in two ways, that even now he has an everlasting dominion, when all nations and all languages adore his name, confess his majesty, follow his teaching, and imitate his goodness. He has power and glory in that all tribes of the earth obey his precepts. And also, when he shall come again with majesty and glory to judge every soul, and to restore the righteous to life, then he shall truly have the government of the whole earth. Then every evil, having been removed from the affairs of men, a golden age, as the poets call it, that is, a time of righteousness and peace will arise. Mm. That's pretty cool, huh? He goes on, he talks about the thousand years, and then at the bottom there, he uh, just uh, backing up to the start of that paragraph, uh, he says, Then that darkness will be taken away from the world with which the heaven will be overspread and darkened, and the moon will receive the brightness of the sun, nor will it be further diminished, but the sun will become seven times brighter than it is now. And then the highlighted part. And the earth will open its fruitfulness. Mm. That sounds like a lot of stuff we've been reading, right? The abundance of the, the, the fruit of the earth, and bring forth most abundant fruits of its own accord. The rocky mountains shall drop with honey. Streams of wine shall run down, and rivers flow with milk. In short, the world itself shall rejoice, and all nature exult, being rescued and set free from the dominion of evil and impiety and guilt and error. Throughout this time, beasts shall not be nourished by blood, nor nor birds by prey, but all things shall be peaceful and tranquil. Lions and calves shall stand together at the manger. The wolf shall not carry off the sheep. The hound shall not hunt for prey. Hawks and eagles shall not injure. The infant shall play with serpents. In short, those things shall then come to pass, which the poets spoke of as being done in the reign of Saturnus, whose error arose from this source. So he, 
just to tell you what he's doing here, he's, he's writing this, but he's writing to an audience that has other beliefs. And so he's trying to find bridges between their beliefs and what the Bible is teaching. And then at the uh, very end of his... He's writing to not just other Christians. But to no, he's writing to Roman pagans. Okay. Yeah. Or just educated people that would know what the poets say. You know, it could be Christians or non-Christians. But then, after the destruction of the impious religions and the suppression of guilt, the earth shall be subject to God. Hallelujah. Praise God. Amen. Therefore, men will live a most tranquil life, abounding with resources, and will reign together with God. And the kings of the nations shall come from the ends of the earth with gifts and offerings to adore and honor the great king, whose name shall be renowned and venerated by all the nations, which shall be under heaven, and by the kings who shall rule on earth. What else do I have on yours? Is that it? Okay. So then I mentioned in the 5th century, um, Jerome said that this guy Apollinaris and many Apollinarians believe in the kingdom because in his commentary, in Jerome's commentary on Isaiah, in the prologue to book 18, he talks about how nervous he is, how his book is going to be received. He's writing a commentary on Isaiah, and he's going to spiritualize every single kingdom prophecy. Remember all the kingdom prophecies we look for, looked at? He goes through all of them, and he explains how this refers to the church, or this somehow doesn't refer to a future age. And so when he starts in his prologue, he's like, I'm, I'm worried about how people are going to receive this because there are so many of these people that believe in the future kingdom. Mm -hmm. So we could do more research to find out if any of those writings survived. Probably, probably they did, some of them. And then the uh, absolute most influential Christian, other than Paul, <laughs> of course, Jesus is you know, the, not, not counting Jesus, is Augustine in all of human history. <laughs> uh, so Augustine is, is, is a big show. And he, he writes, and he's very active at the end of the fourth, but especially in the first 30 years of the fifth century, up until he dies in the year 430. And Augustine mentions that when he was a young man, he believed in the kingdom. He grew up believing in the kingdom. And then, well, I mean, he wasn't a Christian growing up, but he... As a younger Christian, he believed in the, in the kingdom. And then later on, he didn't believe in it anymore. Okay? And uh, we'll look more at that later. But even as late as the 5th century, you still have people talking about the kingdom. So this is not an idea that just like instantaneously fell away the moment the apostles died. Okay? It's an idea that persisted for a long time. It persists throughout the Middle Ages as well. Certain people, look, if you're reading the Bible, God can work with you to see the kingdom. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. In the next three lectures, I'm going to be looking at the other side of the equation, looking at kingdom deniers and polemics against those who believed in the kingdom in order to get an understanding of how this core teaching of the prophets of Jesus, of really the whole Bible, ended up getting lost and rejected. So stay tuned for that next week. If you would like to sign up to receive emails when new podcasts and posts come out for Restitutio. Jump on over to restitutio.org and you can sign up to receive email updates. And you also get a free ebook. If you haven't got that yet, I encourage you to check that out. It's called The Habits of a Disciple. And when you sign up for email, you get that free. It works on e-readers like the Kindle 
and Nook and whatever else is out there as well as on your phone. So check that out and we'll see you next time. Remember, the truth has nothing to fear.